This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, I'm Geraldine Doog, and thank you for joining me for the second of the Boyer Lecture Series for 2021, Shakespeare, Soul of the Age. The esteemed theatre director, theatre manager, actor and educator John Bell is presenting this year's lectures on how relevant William Shakespeare is to today's world and what his insights can offer us. John's dedicated his career to the theatre and to bringing Shakespeare's works to both audiences and classrooms. He's been recognised by both the Australian and British governments, as well as his peers, winning many accolades and much respect. Here's John Bell with his second lecture, Order versus Chaos. Soul of the age, the applause, delight and wonder of our stage. My Shakespeare, rise. Thou art a monument without a tomb, and art alive still while thy book doth live, and we have wits to read and praise to give. Ben Johnson. At the time I'm writing this, the Australian federal government is actively discouraging university students from engaging with the humanities by hiking up the fees. Theatre studies courses are disappearing from our campuses. The work of our greatest writer, Shakespeare, is increasingly becoming a specialised study at both a secondary and tertiary level. And our state theatre companies are performing one of his plays every couple of years, if that. So in this Boyer series, I want to encourage a greater awareness of Shakespeare, a reminder of his profound effect on the way we think, speak and see the world, even when we don't realise it. In this time of universal uncertainty and instability, let's look at Shakespeare's advocacy of good governance, order versus chaos. He had strong ideas of what constituted good order and the consequences of bad leadership. As a platform for these ideas, he chose the theatre. Theatre has a number of functions. Its basic one, today at least, is to amuse, entertain and pass the time, which is why so many of us spend over 30 hours a week watching drama on one kind of screen or other. In its origins, theatre had a more profound purpose, a quasi-magical one, to connect human beings to the spirit world, to influence the forces of nature, to explain the origins of the universe and humankind. It has retained a serious function to the present day. It can be used to explore the forces that determine what sort of society we live in and the complex behavioural elements that shape our actions and relationships. Shakespeare articulates theatre's function in Hamlet. The purpose of playing was and is to hold the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her own feature, scorn her own image, and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. That means to reflect the time we live in as precisely as the image made by a signet ring pressed into wax, an exact image. This is why Shakespeare is now mostly performed in modern dress. Just as he used past history to comment on the issues of his day, so we take him at his word and use his plays to reflect and comment on the world around us, 
the age and body of our time. In 2017, a New York public theatre production of Julius Caesar was violently attacked in some press and social media for presenting the would-be tyrant as a Donald Trump look-alike. But pretty well every time the play is staged, it provokes controversy. Being stabbed in the back is now a commonplace term, especially in the political arena, and political upheavals are frequently described in the press as Shakespearean. People who have never read or seen the plays are still familiar with prototypes such as Macbeth, Richard III, Romeo and Juliet, and King Lear. This doesn't mean that Shakespeare sets out to teach, he is not didactic, but simply shows us ourselves as in a mirror. By playing out his scenarios, we come to understand ourselves more fully, analyse people's motives, behold the consequences of our actions. So in that way Shakespeare is educational, but by way of parable, inference and demonstration. In the words of the war poet Wilfred Owen, all a poet can do today is warn. What's behind Shakespeare's interest in power, politics and good governance? Like us, he lived in turbulent and uncertain times. England had just beaten off the Spanish Armada, but other attacks were imminent. Maybe a crusade by a coalition of the Catholic princes of Europe to drag Protestant England back into the fold. The Pope had declared Queen Elizabeth a heretic and sanctioned her assassination. The air was thick with rumours of treason, and at least two plots came close to fruition that of Mary, Queen of Scots, to displace her cousin Elizabeth, and that by Guy Fawkes and his mates to wipe out King James, the royal family, and the Parliament with their gunpowder plot. Dangerous times. Speaking out was a risky business. You could be imprisoned, mutilated, or executed for criticising the regime. One place you could speak out was in the theatre, but here, too, the audience was sprinkled with spies and informers, listening for signs of sedition. Censorship was severe. So Shakespeare did well to locate his plays in ancient Rome, in Denmark, Italy, or medieval England. This enabled him to play with controversial ideas or sentiments while wearing a mask of innocence. But wherever the plays were nominally set, they were always about here and now, in his England. One of the main reasons for disquiet among Shakespeare and his contemporaries was uncertainty surrounding succession to the throne. Queen Elizabeth was in her final years, but determined to hang on to absolute power as long as she could, she refused to name a successor. English people feared that some foreign prince or ambitious English nobleman might make a grab for the crown, leading to the creation of rival factions and perhaps even civil war. The country still had bitter memories of the Wars of the Roses only a hundred years earlier, that bitter contest of rival factions that tore the country apart. Shakespeare had chronicled that horrendous era in his three plays about Henry VI, culminating in a battle scene in which a son kills his father and a father kills his son, and resulting in the tyranny of Richard III. Shakespeare was well steeped in history and the classics. 
he and his brothers received a free education at the Stratford-on-Avon Grammar School by virtue of his father being an alderman and chief bailiff of the town. The school was one of the best in the country, all its tutors coming from nearby Oxford. The Roman classics in particular furnished him with examples of good and bad governance, as well as the rich mythology of Ovid. Power politics run through all of Shakespeare's work, the comedies as well as the histories and tragedies. The Cain and Abel myth manifests again and again. We see brother pitted against brother in As You Like It, The Tempest, Much Ado About Nothing, Hamlet, and most of all in that feast of fratricide, the Henry VI trilogy and Richard III. Machiavelli had provided a guidebook for potential tyrants, but in England his name became synonymous with treachery and self-interest. As Richard, Duke of Gloucester, brags on his bloody pathway to the throne, he can put the murderous Machiavel to school. The chaos resulting from the Wars of the Roses and the undercurrent of treason so prevalent in Shakespeare's lifetime encouraged him to envision a conservative image of order, so charmingly described by the Archbishop in Henry V. Therefore doth heaven divide the state of man in divers functions, setting endeavour in continual motion, to which is fixed as an aim or but obedience. For so work the honey-bees, creatures that by a rule in nature teach the act of order to a peopled kingdom. They have a king and officers of sorts, where some, like magistrates, correct at home, others, like merchants, venture trade abroad. Others, like soldiers, armoured in their stings, make boot upon the summer's velvet buds, which pillage they with merry march bring home to the tent royal of their emperor, who, busied in his majesty, surveys the singing masons building roofs of gold, the civil citizens kneading up the honey, the poor mechanic porters crowding in their heavy burdens at his narrow gate, the sad-eyed justice with his surly hum, delivering o'er to executors pale the lazy, yawning drone. This utopian vision of order, with everything and everyone in his proper place, according to degree and function, is endorsed by Ulysses in Troilus and Cressida. Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. If that sounds a touch too Tory, it should be remembered that Ulysses is here speaking in a military context, and even today most of us would agree that an army where insubordination is rife is one that cannot function effectively. Henry V comes closest to Shakespeare's ideal leader, but we mustn't forget that he initiates a quite unnecessary war of aggression. On his deathbed, his father, Henry IV, gives him advice along the following lines. If you want to secure your hold on power— shut up troublemakers and distract from domestic problems, declare war on France. It will make you a national hero and unite the country behind you. Henry follows his father's advice with stunning success, thereby establishing his idea of order. We've seen the same playbook used many times since in the 20th century, with catastrophic results. The opposite pole of order is chaos, the kind of chaos unleashed by the rabble-rouser Jack Cade, who we meet in Henry VI. Cade is an illiterate buffoon, a liar, a braggart, and a fraud. 
but he knows how to tap into people's ignorance and prejudice. When Donald Trump incited his followers to storm the Capitol, he was taking a leaf out of Jack Cade's playbook. Here he condemns an enemy of the state, a humble grammar school teacher. I am the broom that must sweep the realm clean of such filth as thou art. Thou hast most traitorously corrupted the youth of this realm in erecting a grammar school. And it'll be proved to thy face there must men about thee that talk of a noun and a verb and such abominable words as no Christian ear can abide to hear. Hang him with his pen and inkhorn around his neck. The proudest peer in the realm shall not wear a head on his shoulders unless he pay me tribute. There shall not a maid be married, but she shall pay to me her maidenhead ere they have it. Now go summon, pull down the Savoy, others to the inns of court, down with them all, away, away, burn all the records of the realm. My mouth shall be the Parliament of England. His followers respond enthusiastically with a cry of, first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. The mob in Shakespeare is not always as bovine as the followers of Jack Cade. We may smile at the fickleness of the crowd in Julius Caesar, so quickly persuaded by Mark Antony to turn their anger against the conspirators. But this scene is less about the naivety of the crowd than it is about Antony's devious and brilliant oratory. He is the populist demagogue par excellence. Populism is as rampant and unabashed now as it ever was. We see politicians dividing the community with artificial social constructs, pitting town against country, rural and regional folk and quiet Australians against the apartment-dwelling, latte-sipping urban elites. A false dichotomy, a political stunt. A true leader will seek to unite the country rather than divide it. We see some politicians and reactionary journalists castigating school students for their climate change activism and we see politicians all around the world embracing or denying scientific advice, cherry-picking the bits they want to hear according to political self-interest. Who can forget Prime Minister Tony Abbott dismissing climate change as crap, or Donald Trump savagely denigrating his chief medical adviser, Anthony Fauci, along with so many other of his sage councillors? This is anti-intellectual, anti-scientific populism at its worst but in many places it wins votes. Shakespeare's citizens are often quite savvy when it comes to voting. In Coriolanus, the citizens vote for the war hero Caius Martius to become consul, but they quickly withdraw their votes when they spot his potential to be a tyrant. And in a similar vein, the citizens in Richard III are stubbornly silent when exhorted by that master of spin, the Duke of Buckingham, to acclaim Richard, Duke of Gloucester, as their new king. Given the structure of Elizabethan and Jacobean society, the ordinary citizens had little political power except silence, the power of passive resistance. But they could see well enough what was going on. In Richard III, a scrivener is given the task of publishing fake news to justify the execution of Lord Hastings. He addresses the audience, "'Who is so gross that cannot see this palpable device?' 
yet who's so bold but says he sees it not? Eerie echoes of current repression in Hong Kong and Belarus, and the silencing of a free press. In Australia today, and much more so in America, we have to decide how much power we are prepared to cede to government and how to balance that with individual liberty. The present pandemic has brought that to a head, with protests, some of them violent, against lockdown and vaccination programs. Anarchy and tyranny are making a comeback. We see autocrats like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping extending their hold on power, with China making the most of the defeat of the US and its allies in Afghanistan. While China snuggles up to the Taliban, the US, Britain and Australia have to eat humble pie and recognize this terrorist organization as a legitimate government. International terrorism has been given a new lease of life. So we look to the man at the top for inspiration. In Shakespeare's day, the existing order placed a king at the top, but this structure was only human and therefore fallible and had inherent weaknesses. Having read Utopia, Shakespeare would have taken on board Thomas More's observation, When I consider any social system that prevails in the modern world, I can't, so help me God, see it as anything but a conspiracy of the rich. Order depends on the monarch being wise, temperate and virtuous, one who takes advice from sage counsellors. Too often Shakespeare's kings ignore good advice and shut down criticism. Lear banishes Cordelia and the worthy Kent for daring to contradict him. Leontes, king of Sicily in the winter's tale, similarly hectors and bullies his faithful servants Camillo and Paulina. Both kings pay heavily for their arrogance. The kings themselves are far from perfect. All of Shakespeare's kings, except Henry V, has some fatal flaw. King John is a treacherous murderer. Richard II is deluded by a sense of entitlement. Henry VI is weak and vacillating, and Lear a victim of senile arrogance. But criticising royalty was a precarious business. Ben Jonson was clapped into prison for making a joke about Scotsmen. King James, a Scot, didn't see the joke. Shakespeare himself came under the shadow of the scaffold with his play Richard II, which depicted Richard being deposed by his cousin Henry Bolingbroke and handing over his crown. This much displeased Queen Elizabeth, who was in danger of being deposed by her own cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots. The play was at first banned, and then allowed to be performed only if the deposition scene was cut, thereby gutting the play. Elizabeth herself fumed, I am Richard II, know ye not that? Despite his brush with the executioner, Shakespeare persisted with his critique of royalty consider the following speech. I think the king is but a man as I am. The violet smells to him as it doth to me. The element shows to him as it doth to me. All his senses have but human conditions. His ceremonies laid by, in his nakedness he appears but a man. Such a statement could have been regarded as seditious. But Shakespeare avoids censure 
by putting those words into the mouth of the king himself, no less a person than Henry V, the poster boy of the monarchy. If he says it, it must be okay. But the most devastating deconstruction of royalty is King Lear. Here is an old monarch who has reached his used-by date, but refuses to step down. He wants to abdicate the responsibility of office, but hang on to the perks. His decision to divide his kingdom among his three daughters is a disastrous one, sowing the seeds of future conflict and civil war. His proposed retirement is a fantasy, a lifelong holiday spent journeying between his daughters' households, accompanied by a revenue of a hundred rowdy knights. How could he imagine the haughty, selfish Goneril and Regan would find that acceptable? But his greatest mistake is to make the division of the kingdom dependent on a love test. Whichever daughter professes the greatest love for him will receive the choicest portion. He has secretly preserved the best one for his favourite Cordelia, confident that she will outshine her sisters in flattery. But when Cordelia refuses to participate in this odious lottery, Lear, in his rage, banishes her and divides the kingdom between Goneril and Regan with their respective husbands. With Cordelia gone, Lear comes to realise his blunder as the two elder daughters strip him of his retinue and cast him into the wilderness. Driven crazy by grief and rage, the once mighty king is reduced to being a homeless beggar, roaming the landscape in the midst of a raging storm that echoes the chaos of his mind. Now he realises his true status. Poor naked wretches, wheresoe'er you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm. How shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Oh, I have taken too little care of this. They flattered me like a dog, and told me I had white hairs in my beard ere the black ones were there, to say aye and no to everything I said. When the rain came to wet me once, and the wind to make me chatter, when the thunder would not peace at my bidding, there I found him, there I smelt him out. Go to, they are not men of their words. They told me I was everything. Tis a lie. I am not ague-proof. And then, coming across the blind Duke of Gloucester, who has also been thrown out into the storm, Lear delivers a pungent critique of the social order. In your head, nor no money in your purse. Yet you see how this world goes. A man may see how this world goes with no eyes. Look with thine ears. See how yonder justice rails on yon simple thief. Hark in thine ear. Change places and handy dandy. Which is the justice? Which is the thief? Thou hast seen a farmer's dog bark at a beggar, and the creature run from the cur. There thou mightst behold the great image of authority. A dog's obeyed in office. Thou, rascal beadle, hold thy bloody hand. Why dost thou lash that whore? Strip thine own back. Thou hotly lustst to use her in that kind for which thou whipst her. Through tattered clothes, small vices do appear. Robes and furred gowns hide all. Plates in with gold, and the strong lance of justice hurtless breaks. Arm it in rags, a pygmy's straw doth pierce it. Get thee glass eyes, and like a scurvy politician, seem to see the things thou dost not.
King James was a firm believer in the sacred nature of the monarchy and was notoriously sensitive to criticism. Yet Shakespeare was daring enough to present him with this portrait of a king reduced to madness and beggary, railing against the social structure and all forms of authority. But he had one card up his sleeve that would have pleased King James immensely. He was at the time working hard at bringing England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales together to form a united kingdom. Many of his advisers were against it. So he would have appreciated the public demonstration of the chaos resulting from cutting a kingdom into three. In searching for an alternative to absolute monarchy, Shakespeare seems to have flirted with the virtues of republicanism. His version of Julius Caesar reverses expectations. Caesar was widely regarded as one of the nine worthies of antiquity, his assassins, wicked regicides. But Shakespeare depicts Caesar as a man who has outstayed his welcome, a man with a feeble constitution, falling into his dotage with delusions of grandeur. The conspirators who toppled him are treated with varying degrees of sympathy, especially Brutus, the noblest Roman of them all. The Tyrannicides sacrificed their lives to preserve the Republic, but the civil war resulting from their actions sees the destruction of the Republic and the emergence of something worse than monarchy, an imperial Rome with an emperor endowed with a semi-divine status. The irony is not lost on Shakespeare, always sceptical about the men who rise to power and how they get there. There is nothing inherently wrong with power, but as Brutus reminds us, the abuse of greatness is when it disjoins remorse from power. A sentiment echoed by Isabella in Measure for Measure, Oh, it is excellent to have a giant's strength, but it is tyrannous to use it like a giant. Shakespeare's scepticism makes for a degree of ambivalence in so many of his plays. So it's been possible to play Coriolanus as a Marxist parable showing the power of the people in hounding a dangerous fascist out of office, or as a piece of Tory propaganda lamenting the downfall of a great man at the hands of ignorant plebeians. This scepticism can tip into full-on cynicism in the case of Troilus and Cressida, a baleful hatchet job on the mythology of the Trojan War, transforming an heroic epic into a tale of whores and knaves. The story is stripped of its grandeur to reveal a grubby power struggle engaged in a pointless war. Faced with the political order of the day, Shakespeare could only hope that common sense and decency would ultimately prevail in all attempts at good governance. Absolute monarchy and its attendant shortcomings seemed to be set in stone. Shakespeare could have hardly believed that a mere 33 years after his own death, England would execute its king and briefly establish a commonwealth. Nor could he have imagined the form of democracy enjoyed in some parts of the world today. That was another 200 years into the future with a proclamation of liberty, equality and fraternity. John Bell with his second talk from his Boyer Lecture Series, Shakespeare, Soul of the Age. Now, you can listen again through the ABC Listen app or catch up on the first lecture in this series if you missed it. Next week at the same time, John will be exploring Shakespeare's women. 
a wonderful array of characters that says a lot, I rather think, about Shakespeare himself. So don't miss that one. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.